Can we go to the throne of grace just one more time before we open the word? Father, would you take Galatians 2.20, out of which the words to this song were penned, where Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you allow that oft-repeated phrase, yet not I, but through Christ in me, to be the theme of our lives? I pray that you would give us grace to where we could say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us with that. Show us Christ tonight as we open the word. Help us understand the promise of mortification in its simplicity, but also in its, in its depth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For our scripture reading tonight, if you'll turn with me to Romans 8. One final time to our text. I said this to our Sunday school class this morning that the pastor of one of our church plants, Grace Baptist Church in Commerce, Georgia, Pastor Murray Brett, uh, as Jamie and I can attest many times, Murray would say that the whole, the key that unlocks the Christian life is Romans chapter 5 through 8. And Charles Hodge says that when you See the opening verse, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that Paul is describing the Christian here now in a place of safety, eternal safety. And so everything from that point on, we understand that. So now Romans 8, 12 through 14, and then we'll turn to Galatians 4. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds, or as the NIV says, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And now to Galatians chapter 4, I'd like to read for us verses 16 through 26. Immediately before this verse, Paul has said, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. By one another, then is a word of contrast. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the flesh of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And let me add parenthetically here Spirit. Flesh, the mind set on the flesh, life and peace, the mind set 
on the flesh, death. Okay? Paul develops that also, of course, in Romans 8. So Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4.18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, I warned you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Of course, you see a parallel with Galatians 2.20, which I referenced before I prayed. And so finally, Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So tonight, uh, if you've been here for the whole series, please allow me to be a bit considerate to those of you who are here for the first time in what will be the final message. So I'll repeat just a few things. It was the Puritan John Owens who wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And... It's as though all the collective weight of those first 11 verses and actually the whole of the book of Romans comes when we get to verse 13. But Paul sets us up in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8 by speaking of this great contrast. Those who live according to the flesh, who set their minds on the flesh, and therefore death is their lot. Verses over here those who live according to the Spirit, who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, to whom Paul says is life and peace. This evening, our topic is the promise of mortification, and it's found you know, in those three words, you will live. And we've come to the fourth and final message on this subject of mortification. Three weeks ago, we saw the necessity for mortification. For if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. And then in three little words, but one powerful phrase, two weeks ago we learned the means or the instrument of mortification and not in an impersonal way we're referring to the spirit. Mortification, Paul says, is to be accomplished by the Spirit. There's no preposition there in the Greek. In the case, we could legitimately translate this maybe in the Spirit, with the Spirit, but we translate it in an instrumental way, by the Spirit. But I think, in a sense, all are helpful. The Spirit, we rest in the Spirit. 
We're accompanied with the Spirit. We're enabled by the Spirit. Then last week, we considered the nature of mortification from that phrase in the middle and second half of our text. Paul says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, there he gives words and freight to what we mean by the nature of mortification. And if you ask what it means to mortify sin or the goal of mortifying sin, let me quote Jerry Bridges here, who I quoted this morning in our Sunday school class from his book, The Discipline of Grace, God's Role and Our Role in the Pursuit of Holiness. This is what he says. To mortify or kill a sin means to subdue it, to deprive it of its power, to break the habit pattern that we have developed of continually giving in to the temptation to that particular sin. And he goes on to say, the goal of mortification is to weaken the habits of sin so that we do make the right choices. But now this week, the promise of mortification from that little phrase, you will live the final three words of Romans 8 and verse 13. A simple but packed expression. In fact, earlier when, two weeks ago, when I was preaching on that phrase, by the Spirit, the means of mortification, we equated that to the powerful words, I love you. Don't overlook both the simplicity, but the power and the profundity of this expression, you will live. But before we get into that more deeply, I want to repeat that what many of you have heard, but for you first-timers, I want to give three foundational principles about the mortification of sin from that Prince of English Puritans, John Owen. All right? And I think these will be helpful, and I want to repeat them just for those of you here for, here for the first time. Number one, first of the three foundational principles, this mortification is the work of every believer. You can't say, well, I only became a Christian last week, or I think I'm dying tonight. Mortification is a work for every season of the Christian life. Dr. Owen says this, the choices believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. What he's saying is, it's two sides of one coin that you cannot separate. Justification and sanctification. Those whom God justifies, he will surely infallibly bring to perfect imitation reflection of the Lord Jesus in glorification. But secondly, the Holy Spirit's the only efficient means of mortification. And to quote Dr. Owen, he says it this way, only the Holy Spirit is sufficient for this work. And to sum up Dr. Owen's teaching on the Spirit as our helper, as the instrument of our mortification, Jerry Bridges says it this way. Here it is. And he's really, in a sense, paraphrasing John Owens. He says, mortification attempted only by human willpower always ends in self-righteousness or frustration. And we quoted Zechariah 4, verse 6, 
where we read this word for Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This by the spirit is an expression not only of the spirit's power, but of the position that we're in, and that is one of dependence. But then thirdly, Owen says, the vitality and quality of our Christian experience is largely dependent right here. And this is what he concludes. Here's what he says. The life vigor and comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much upon this work of mortifying sin. There's a paradox here. The vigor of your life in Christ is connected to the degree to which you're killing sin. Life and death are connected here. And so these three foundational principles, they provide our pursuit of mortification with a real focus. And here it is in one sentence. In sum, mortification is the sum of every believer made effective only by the Spirit and is largely the source for real vitality in our Christian lives. If you're just moving along the Christian life and cruise control and you're not purposefully, intentionally killing the vestige of sin, the remnants of sin in you, Paul would say, you'll die. You'll die. And that if you, as a habit of your life, are disinterested or not putting to death the remaining sin in you, then that reduces your claim. It really eliminates your claim to be a Christian. So what's the promise of mortification? Paul says it in the simplest terms. Look at this, you will live. And Charles Hodge writes this of this phrase, you will live. And I want, I want to encourage you tonight, I'm not going to weary you with an outline particularly, I'd like you to, live, to hang with me. As you think of this phrase, you will live, this is what Charles Hodge says of it. He says, of those who mortify the deeds of the body and that they will live, he says, we will enjoy the many. The life of which the Spirit is the author, including, therefore, holiness, happiness, and eternal glory. And I don't know about you, but I think Dr. Hodges' list of the benefits of our mortifying sin are pretty good. I'm buying. I'm buying. I'm sold. Life, here's what he says. Holiness, happiness, and eternal glory. But let's peer in on the phrase itself for a moment. It's what we call a predictive future. It's a future tense. But there's sometimes what we call an imperatival future, like in Matthew 21, when with a future tense, the angel says, and you will give him what? The name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. But this is a predictive future. Not you shall live as in a command, but at its essence, a promise. And so my title tonight, Life, the Promise and Reward of Mortification. Paul is giving us more than a true statement or a statement of fact. Or more simply, that he's stating what is factual. This is more than a, a wife looking to her husband and saying after 30 years of marriage, do you love me? 
And the, and the husband looking with no sense of emotion and saying, with a blank face, as a matter of verifi- verifiable fact and attested, it, attested by many witnesses, it's demonstrably true that I love you. But by the way, guys, don't try that. There's something different here than the mere statement of fact. The promise that Paul presents or offers here is God's gift. And more than that, it's the gift of God himself. He's giving life. He's the author of life who gives life to those in union with Christ. But the concept here is active. It's not the use of life as a noun, zoe, but it's a verbal form to say not they will have life, but a verb in the future tense, you will live. And we can't add to and improve God's promise to his redeemed who have made this a practice of slaying their indwelling sin, you will live. Imagine this. It's like when someone sends you something, they want you to proof it. And you think as you read it, I can't add to it. I can't improve it. It's as clear and effective just as it's expressed. Here it is. Christian, are you putting to death the misdeeds of the body of the sin that remains in you? Here's Paul's promise by the Spirit. You will live. You will live live. So let me ask this of you. Can this be said of you, you will live? If it can, then it is because you are daily mortifying the deeds, not simply sin, but sins, the misdeeds of the body, actually killing. And now listen to this. Not simply the ripe expressions of an old unconverted nature, but here's the exception. What you're actually killing is the last vestiges of a shrinking, dying, starving breed or principle in you. And I'm asking this, is the sin that dwells in you, is it dying at your hand and with the help of the Spirit by virtue of your union with Christ, a slow, gargling, choking death. If it is, here's good news. You're living. You're alive. Do you want the Spirit's work in you to continue? For Him to dwell in you as the Spirit of life and the Spirit of Christ, A.K. Romans 8, to mediate his presence so that as Paul says, Christ in you is your hope of glory. So by the Spirit's indwelling in you, helping you in this daily killing of sin, you have an interest that he might magnify for you so that you might see with greater clarity and joy the person in the work of the Son of God in all his perfections to display for you Jesus 
in all his offices as prophet, priest, and king of the church who gave his lifeblood for her. If you do, if the answer to those questions, to that multiform question is yes, that's life. That's what it means when Paul says of those who are daily but quite imperfectly putting to death the misdeeds of the body by, in, and with the Spirit's help. What does he say? You will live. Do not add to those words. Do not complicate those words. Do not misconstrue those words. We're not talking about the eradication in this life of remaining sin. But you have one nature, and it's a renewed nature. If you've been made alive in Christ from the realm of the dead to the realm of the living, and now what is yours to do is mine, and that is to daily, by his grace, by his strength, by virtue of our union with Christ, to put to death and reduce to weakness the remaining sin in ours, in us. So don't complicate those words. Even for the most tender, the most young, youngest believer from among the children of our church, we may have some children in our church. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe you're five, six, seven, eight, ten. And you possess faith. And you have a desire to resist and push back against sin that you know is inside you. And you want to kill it. You want to kill the remaining sin that's in you because you want to know those words you will live. So children, this is a word for you now. The Bible is for you. The cross of Jesus is yours. The gospel is powerful enough to save you. God is not so tall that he's overlooking you. He knows your name, the color and the numbers of the hair on your head. He knows the sound of your voice, where you live and your favorite color. He appointed the very year and month, the day the hour and the place where you were born. And if you've already trusted Christ to save you, then these words, these little words, these three words, you will live, are as much yours as they are the oldest, biggest, tallest, most serious person in this room, okay? So I want to ask you a question. This is for children. And if it's for children, it's largely applicable to children six feet tall, okay? All right. Do you want to say no to sin? Do you want to resist temptation? To put your fist right in the teeth of those sinful attitudes of your heart? To squelch those hurtful words that come out of your mouth, and as soon as they come out of your mouth, and you know, I was ugly. Or maybe those things that you do or you fail to do that you know that don't please God. If you do, if you desire all of that, 
then Paul says, the Apostle Paul says you will live. This is just as true for little kids as it is for big kids. And when Paul says you will live at the end of Romans 8.13, he gives this a promise of life, eternal, joy-filled life, even if filled with these painful and perplexing seasons of affliction, of which I know some of you are in. Some of you are in the midst of trials and challenges of indefinite length. You'd say, wow, if this, I just knew this was over on September the 10th. I could really get through these next 20 days. But we read in another place, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You live longing for answered prayer, but you have unanswered prayer. You long for greater assurance and victory over sin, but there's the daily struggle of assurance and indwelling sin. Not to mention what it feels like to live in a sin-cursed world where you know that the whole, you think, what's that sound you hear? It's the whole of creation that's groaning under sin's curse. Paul says you will live. In the opening of his gospel, John wrote of the Logos. He said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You know the Lord Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then in his high priestly prayer, he prayed this, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You will live then, equates to you will know his life within you, his life for you. The Spirit indwells us. So I ask, are you a Christian? The Spirit dwells in you. You're not left alone. The Spirit works in us. Are you in Christ? The Spirit is at work in you. And as an application of that too, it ought to help us to bear one another's burdens and to bear with each other when we remind ourselves that the Spirit is at work in the brother or sister to the left or right of you. The Spirit prays for us. Are you in Christ? Then the Spirit is praying for you. Have you been born again? The Spirit prays for you. The Spirit produces His fruit in us. He reveals and displays Christ to us. And why are these expressions so significant? I want to encourage you if you're weary with the fight. I know, and this is reasonable to expect, that if you have 100 people hearing a sermon on mortification, there's a certain percentage that says, I am weary with the fight. Does anyone understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. It's not like this whole thing of mortification would be like, well, that's four years from my undergraduate, and I know in May of 2027, I'm going to walk, and I'll be done, and I'll never have to sit in class today. I'll be done. Like, check mark. No, this is a work of dying people to our dying day. But I want to encourage you for a moment. Here's a truth to hold on to. Have you ever recognized or thought this? Before you ever dealt with the remaining sin in you, 
God dealt in a final way with the whole sin that was against you. Before you dealt with the remaining sin in you, God dealt with the whole sin that was against you. In Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul said to the Colossians, And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, or trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with them, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's Colossians 2, 13 through 15. So what is that life? When you see these words in Romans 8, 13, and you ask, what does it mean to say, to read the words, you will live? I want to give you four points. And I resisted the temptation. I thought, we're always outlining sermons. Let's do an unoutlined sermon as a little change of pace. But four points that all start with F that I want to leave you with as you think about what is this life that's promised you will live. We talked about it's a predictive future. But there's something that I want you to notice as you, it's not always evident in the text. All these yous here are in the plural. Remember that Paul here is not doing a one-on-one presentation here. This letter was read to the church at Rome. And one of the things that's really cool about Romans, if you didn't, you, if you'll kind of study through it, you'll see Paul use the first person pronoun, we and us and our. And I love how even at verse 12, when he gets to this section, so then, which is very inferential, like based on what he just said in Romans 8, 1 through 11, he says, we are debtors. We have an obligation. He doesn't simply take his finger and stick it in the chest of the church at Rome, but he comes alongside them and says, this is for us to do as a spiritual community. And the voice of this verb, you will live, is in the middle voice, and it's unique in Greek to communicate simply that this is not just active or not just passive, but it's somewhere in the middle ground where the action taken by something has an impact on the person taking the action. Let me illustrate it. If right now I took a paddle ball and a ball and I got a little close to that wall and I hit that ball as hard as I could but with no plan on my part that ball bounced off that wall and hit me right in the face and knocked me out cold that's what the middle voice is like what Paul is saying is your living which is connected to our union in Christ has an impact on us there we're thinking we're thinking it's all us we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh that still remain in us but Paul is saying look the effect of this you're living you will live 
but you're impacted by this life that you live in Christ, this life of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So four Fs and we'll be done. Four words, four ideas of what this life is like when Paul says you will live. Number one is that we'll have a felt sense of God's presence. Not perfectly and not always. But it's it's central to the promise of the new covenant that he says, I will be your God and you will be your people. How fitting it was for God to say to Joshua and then to hear it repeated in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even David in Psalm 23, he got this, right? Do I walk through the valley of the shadow of deepest darkness? I will fear no evil for you are with me. We have a felt sense of God's presence. It's why Paul speaks of those who are led by the Spirit of God. Not only do we have his presence, but we're led by his Spirit. There's a second thing, and that is freedom in prayer. A new and a renewed freedom in prayer. Look there in verse, if you hadn't seen this, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. A generally, a true a statement to encourage us in a general way, but specifically in prayer. With this explanation, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever thought the Spirit helps you to pray by praying for you. Ever thought of that? Hmm. That's like, let me, let me help you cook by cooking for you. The Spirit helps us pray, helps us in this intersection of our weakness, which is prayer by praying for us, addressing our neediness in prayer. Is an application I want to point out to you that a man that thought long and hard about the Christian life, J.I. Packer, argues that it is principally by prayer that we engage this whole work of mortification. Tomorrow morning, you think, all right, four sermons on mortification of sin. I really want to get started. I want to renew. Then I think J.I. Packer would speak to us from the grave and say, Pray. Pray. There's a third word. Not just a felt sense of God's presence. Not just freedom in prayer, but the fruit of the Spirit. There's this whole panoply of the Spirit's indwelling us. Displaying the displaying of his person and then revealing the love of the Father for us through the Son by the Spirit. What is the role of the Spirit? One of the specific roles of the Spirit is to reveal to us just how great the love of the Father is for us through the Son. And that's why Paul gives this word of promise to the, to the mortifiers. Are you a mortifier? 
Now, I didn't ask, are you mortified? I'm asked, are you a mortifier? Paul says, you will live. Finally, not only do we have a felt sense of God's presence, not only do we have this freedom in prayer, not only do we have the fruit of the Spirit, but we have full rights as children of God. Paul says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is important that you notice that Paul is connecting what he's asserting in verse 14 to what he's just immediately stated in verse 13. Why will you live? Why will you live if you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body? Why can Paul state that with such confidence? Because that reveals, that identifies, that marks you out as one who's a son of God because you're evidencing that you're led by the Spirit of God. And this phrase, by the way, girls, girls, ladies, women, don't be put off by Paul not saying sons and daughters of God here, okay? This relates to adoption and heirship, and I'll get to that. Understand here that this life speaks to your full rights as children of God, and even properly to use this phrase, sons of God. There's three things we've addressed them in weeks before, but I want to repeat them. Number one, you will bear your father's image. You know the phrase, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. What do you see? What do you see when you look around? Do you, do, you, do you ever think, I am seeing brothers and sisters in Christ, sons of the Most High God who are being led by the Spirit of God, who are increasingly bearing the image of Christ? What's being fulfilled before our eyes is this promise in verse 29 that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This morning, I noticed one of the son, one of the brothers of our students looked taller than the last time that I saw him. And I said to him, I really think, like, you've changed. You've changed since I saw you last. Like, you look two or three inches taller. I'm thinking that to myself. Do you give credit to your brothers and sisters that God is at work in them? Is it practice? Like, do you acknowledge that? Do you acknowledge that with glad, grateful prayer? Do you acknowledge that to your brothers and sisters with affirming words to say, I see God working in you. You're changing. You're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we speak of these full rights as children of God, there's a second thing, and that is you bask in your Father's love and affection. It may sound trite, but this saying that he cannot love you more and he will not love you less is true. There's a reason that Psalm 136, if you'll turn there for a moment, phrase, 
The second part of which for all 26 verses has the same resounding note. For his steadfast love endures forever. How long has it been as a way of application? Let me ask you, how long has it been since you have pondered how deep the Father's love for you really is? How long has it been since you looked down and sought to plumb the depths of what God has done for us in Christ? There's a final thing that will be done. As we speak of the full rights we have as children of God, not only will we bear our Father's image, not only may we bask in His love and affection for us, but thirdly, we must understand as a matter of security that our birthright as an adopted son is guaranteed. For adoption not only precedes heirship, but it guarantees it. It guarantees it. You know, maybe an earthly parent can strike a son or daughter out of their will, but not so with God. It's the glad guarantee of our anticipated receipt of our inheritance. Has he adopted you into his family? Then your future, your hope, just like we sang in that last song, there's a line about that. It's sure so great, so unspeakable, so indescribable that Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. Brothers and sisters, those of you who long to be more like Jesus, who long tomorrow gladly, knowing that this is part of taking up the cross and following Jesus, to say no to sin, for the grace of God to be your teacher, as Paul speaks of in Titus 2, 11 through 14, to say no to unrighteousness and yes, to walking in holiness of life in Christ. I quote Paul, who mined Isaiah 64, 4 when he said this, what, I, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Tired saint, weary of fighting sin, don't forget the promise of mortification. Just like we hear in the Fiddler on the Roof, Lachaim, to life, Lachaim, 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 to life, he says to you, you will live.